Welcome to the SEM Says Podcast, the podcast where seminarians say what's said at the SEM. I'm your host, Nikolai Berlinski. And I'm Alexander Brown. And today, we are going to be talking about talks that Alex has been giving recently at Theology on Tap, parish events, I guess. It's a Lenten series that I'm doing for the cathedral. Lenten um, series. Although Lenten series is sort of a generous title for it. It's more on my thoughts and things I happen to be thinking about during Lent rather than reflecting Lent, qua mm. Lent, I suppose. Good. Well, good. good. <laughs> uh, excellent. <laughs> but from, from what I've heard, feedback, people have been very impressed and happy with your thoughts and reflections, uh, whether Lenten or not. And so they've asked if, if we could record your thoughts um, and some of your talk. So, so Alex, what is the, the topic that you have for, for your Lenten series? Well, the topic is, uh, it's really trying to present fantasy, and specifically Tolkien's works, as mm -hmm. biblical commentaries and theological narratives, mm -hmm. right? So what I'd like to present to the faithful is th this idea that the Lord of the Rings and the Cimmerillion and good, proper fantasy can be read with an element of reverence, almost. It, it could be taken seriously. I'd like to present fantasy right. as something that can be taken seriously for the Christian hmm. because it holds within it elements of truth and it allows us to look at our faith, at reality, at one another in a different way and often a, a deeper way. I think it, mm -hmm. fantasy is a tool that allows us to penetrate the sensible, mm -hmm. not, not the reasonable, but what we can sense and perceive we can penetrate that and really get at the heart of what matters. Truth, goodness, beauty, those transcendentals, salvation, sin, virtue, these things that we hold to be true and real as Christians. Fantasy gives us the language of talking about that. So really my talks are, are they're based around Tolkien, Cimmerillion, and seeing how he does that. But the, the talks that I've given the last couple of weeks have been focused on how fantasy as a genre does that, how it allows okay. us to, to penetrate and, and see deeper into reality. Okay. Well, tell me if you'd like to do differently, but maybe start by giving, like, what's your definition of that genre of fantasy? How, like, strictly or how liberally do you define it? What counts as fantasy? Thank you for asking a question that I happen to have written down. <laughs> no, I mean, I have the answer written down from my, from my notes in the talk. Um, yeah. I, fantasy is a hard genre to nail down, which is a cop-out right off the bat. Um, that's a disclaimer. Richard Pertell wrote a book that I really enjoy, um, Myth, Morality, and Religion. Myth, Morality, and Religion. And he talks about how fantasy is something of a spectrum. So sure. there's fiction as a broader spectrum, as a broader right. genre. But he, he narrows down this definition, and I've distilled it. So fantasy is a genre of imaginative stories where the physical world is affected by non-physical forces, namely one's mind. Okay. So fantasy has that element of magic very often, right. where you have a non-physical force, magic, the, the force almost in Star Wars. Okay. And in understanding it or utilizing it, we can make things move, we can change hmm. other people, cast fireballs. Fantasy is the unity of the spiritual and the physical. Okay. 
which is interesting to me because if you think about it, there are stories that have what I call fantastical norms, okay. uh, knights and dragons and things that you're used to seeing in a fantasy story, mm-hmm. but it lacks that element of the fantastical, that okay. immaterial that I'm talking about. So, for instance, you know, we've had episodes before. I love the How to Train Your Dragon series. Yeah. But that doesn't have this magic that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. It's just people riding dragons and what the world would be like if dragons were more right. common. Okay. I won't say real, if they were more common. <laughs> <laughs> but you have stories like The Lord of the Rings where there is that magic which is called very subtly the secret fire okay. um, again Richard Pertell draws that out as the Holy Spirit, Joseph Pierce does the same thing, the secret fire that gives Gandalf his power, remember on the okay. bridge of Khazad-dûm Gandalf says I am the wielder of the secret fire and you mm. shall not pass Okay. Narnia talks about the deep magic even Terry Pratchett's stories they have magic that you can start, so magic is really a crucial element of what fantasy is okay, gotcha so yeah, so something that like comes to my mind is like it, it's a fantastic story, is completely like different medium, but like the movie Spirited Away. Okay, yeah. I think like it's very fantastical. There's like magic elements, and, but it's very different setting than knights and dragons. Well, there's a dragon, <laughs> <laughs> but a very different setting of, of kind of like strange creatures and things like that. So are you are you looking even into things like that, or you're a little more strictly looking into kind of the the high fantasy? of um, Tolkien and, and C.S. Lewis and that kind of thing? My lens is Tolkien. The The okay. primary project that I'm working on is how does Tolkien see the world? And how does Tolkien... Tolkien's using the language of fantasy to express his point, but my ultimate thesis is what is his point? Okay. So we know that he was a devout Catholic. We know that he was uh, very faithful. So he had insights and a love that he's expressing... And being part of the church, we rely on one another mm. to see the face of Christ. So you have spiritual gifts that I don't, and I have spiritual gifts that you don't. And together, we were in our friendship, Christ is revealed more fully. Sure. Well, yeah. Tolkien is a Christian like us, so what does he have to share with us that reveals the face of God? So that's okay. the lens I'm seeing this through. Mm. And then talking about fantasy broad is stepping back and saying, well, is this project even justified? Okay. Am I reading too much into Tolkien? See, in any story with good versus evil, yeah. you can take your worldview and pitch it to that so that you can see, of course, God and sin or you know, God versus whatever. Um, yeah. I won't necessarily say God versus the devil because that's not a, that's not a fight. That's not how it works, but sure, that's my sure. own pet peeve. Yeah. So what I, what I started this thesis with saying is, am I doing that to Tolkien? Am I just reading, okay. am I using Tolkien as an analogy for what I already believe? Yeah. And, well, no, not quite. Tolkien is already expressing something purposefully, intentionally. Mm-hmm. He's doing this so that he might mm-hmm. share an insight okay. into the faith. Okay. See, you see what, yeah. I'm, what I'm getting at there? Yeah, very much, yeah. I, I had that realization at one point. I read a Stephen King novel, like one of his shorter ones, and I remember getting to the end and being like, what was the point of that? And I'm, I, I just came to realization, like, oh, he's not, he's like, he's writing a horror novel. It's not to have a point. Like, he's not trying to give you this great message or, you know, tell you something about how the world is or some secret knowledge about the world. It's just, okay, here's a crazy, like, situation in the world, and what if this happened? And, like, isn't that, 
scary. Right. <laughs> um, suspenseful even. But yeah, so that is a good distinction of, is, is Tolkien just doing that of just trying to tell a story or is he trying to tell you something about the world as it is? So. Right. I think he's trying to tell us about something about the world as it is. I'm very conscious that I talk fast when we're on the podcast now. Sure. <laughs> so I'll be more articulate. He is trying to tell you some of the world. And I think that we're seeing a breakdown of fantasy mm-hmm. in, in modernity because people aren't taking it seriously. Mm-hmm. So your worldview going into any story, like you're saying, influences what you put into the story. They're not all created equal. Mm-hmm. If you take fantasy seriously going into it, then the story reflects that. Right. In other words, if you already believe in spiritual realities and in metaphysical qualities going into a story, then the story is real yeah. you know, in that way. Sure. And as Christians, we already believe in spirituality and metaphysical qualities. So when we, we're the audience to hear that. Okay, so for instance, one of my biggest pet peeves is the Game of Thrones series. George okay. R. R. Martin explicitly said that what he's doing is, in some of his characters, is taking Aragorn from the Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. and knocking him down a couple of pegs. So he's not satisfied with who Aragorn is as the King of Gondor because that's not, quote-unquote, real. Mm-hmm. So he's trying to create a real character sure. like you and me and put that into a story. Well, that's not the point of fantasy at all. That's not the point of books or reading. Sure. Aragorn is Tolkien's idea of masculinity and kingship. Mm. And he's taking that idea and giving it a face and a voice and putting in all these scenarios and saying, well, how would kingship react in this sort of situation? How would uh, masculinity react in this sort of situation? Running him through all these... So we were talking about this today earlier. Right. Running him through all these stories to seeing how he'd react... And in that way, we come to know this idea even better. Okay. If you don't believe that that's what you're doing in a story, then a whole thing just seems mundane. Okay. Hmm. Which is why I think a lot of young adult novels feel short. Stephen King, very, very entertaining, but doesn't have that substance. Because there's not that substance being invested into it. Sure. Okay. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. An author that I really discovered about a year or two ago was John Steinbeck. Sure. And sure. I think that he does good because he's, he's less fantastic. All of his things are kind of set in the real world and like, you know, California and, and such. Um, <laughs> the real world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but he does do a good job too of like, he uses characters to tell like moral lessons essentially or something about life itself. And, and it's not just, I'm, I'm making up some characters to tell like a story about them. It's entertaining, throw it away. Mm-hmm. But it's, okay, here's, like, the human condition demonstrated through these people. And, like, this man, Samuel Hamilton, he represents, like, goodness and fatherhood and, and that kind of a thing. Yeah. Right. I think to, to be true literature, to have that invested substance, the characters are not, they're not merely placeholders for entertainment or placeholders because you need to tell, yeah. they're not vehicles to tell the story. Yeah. Characters, whether in fantasy or not, they're always caricatures mm-hmm. of something, right? They they show a certain dimension of the human condition of this character trait or this character trait. Yeah, I think I think them they they really have to be caricatures to be compelling. Okay, because wh- why else would we read at all? 
Mm. Like, I, just just go out and talk to people <laughs> if you're gonna if you want quote unquote real life. Yeah. Okay. Very neat. All right. So you've convinced me. So I know what fantasy is. I recognize that the Tolkien's trying to tell me a important message through through his fantasy. What next? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> what next? So let me say a little bit about maybe how Tolkien okay. works. So I already mentioned there's, there's a breaking down the caricatures. Sokolowski, who is a phenomenologist, really expounds upon what it is to think about thinking, okay. essentially. All right, so Sokolowski talks about the way we think about thinking, which I think is important. Because remember, what I'm trying to, to express is that there's an element of reality and fantasy. We look at the world and we abstract, abstract how the world really is by looking at it. Okay. <laughs> so for instance, you know this, you, you study philosophy. You look, at, you look at one cat and you have that experience of cat. You sense it, you see it, you feel it. It, it scratches you and bites you, meows. And you think to yourself, well, that was strange. Then you see another cat and it's like the first one. So you start to associate them. And after a while, you understand that cats, they act in this way and that they are evil. <laughs> dogs, on the other hand, you meet dogs and they're nice. They're good dogs. So you see one dog and another one and then another one. You finally get, kind of get a feel that even though there's a difference between them, some are different colors, they're different sizes, some howl, some bark, there's a unity between all of them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in thinking, we, we could just live our lives reacting to what we see. So you see a dog, and every time you see the dog, it's like you're seeing the dog for the first time, and you have to... But we don't really live like that. Right. We understand that there's a dogness to them, and that's good. Hmm. But if we really wanted to know what a dog is, a, what dogness is, so Kowalski says, you think of dog, and you strip away everything that is unnecessary about the dog. So mm. its size, necessarily, or yeah. I shouldn't mix terms, its size or its color, what breed it is. You strip away all it is, and then you're left with dogness. And then you rebuild from there. So this is what Tolkien does in fiction with things like goodness, virtue, bravery. Again, the transcendentals, the true, the good, and the beautiful. He does it with God. So, for instance, we see God in all of these various aspects in love between a husband and a wife, in love between parents and children, in the sacraments, in art. So God is very scattered in our minds. Mm-hmm. We have this broad picture of God. So we have to think about what the essential qualities of God are. God's not essentially found in the love between a husband and a wife. He's not essentially found in the love between parents and children. Mm-hmm. So what is he essentially? Now, this is very hard for us. Because we understand things one at a time. We have to see the, the cats one at a time to understand what a cat is. We have to understand sure. a dog one at a time to understand what a dog is. We understand particulars. Right. So to imagine the universal, this broad concept of God, we have to then redistill it into a particular. Hmm. Keeping the essential qualities, hmm. but now reinventing particular qualities to it so that we can see it and interact with it. Okay. You're with me so far? Sure. Now, I want to read you this. This is what uh, Sokolowski says. Imaginative variations, that is the changing of, of a, a universal into a particular, 
imaginative variations occur in fiction, where circumstances are imagined that depart from the ordinary, but serve to bring about a necessity. They show how things have to be. It is not the case that one just imagines bizarre settings. This purely fantastic projection is easy enough, but what must happen if there is to be insight that is within, the imaginative circumstance, a necessity, has to be brought into light. For this to occur, the imaginative variations have to be cleverly contrived. We must have the talent to know what imaginative presentation will do the trick. Imagination, excuse me, imagination gives us a glimpse of the necessity. That insight, which the Greeks called nous, is the reward we get for our imaginative effort. So you see, you have to pay attention enough to reality hmm. to know what is necessary about it. Hmm. Okay? So, he, for instance, he goes on to talk about science fiction, not necessarily fantasy, but science fiction, and says, if you're paying attention to humans, you'll see that they're always commutative, and so they're always political, so they always can talk to one another, but they also work together as a group. Uh-huh. So even if you were to change the planet they live on, or put them on spaceships, or change what they look like, you can't remove those necessary qualities from the human person. Mm-hmm. And by changing all of the circumstance around them, mm-hmm. you then are left with that which is necessary. So in watching science fiction, the takeaway, if you're paying attention, the takeaway is that humans really are good creatures. They really are good at working together and defeating evil and working for the good. Hmm. See, these necessary qualities, if you like. You see see what I'm trying to say here? Okay. So this is what Tolkien is doing. He's looking at reality and and taking those things. What's interesting is Tolkien actually admits to doing this, and he calls it sub-creation. So he views himself as having a participation in God's creative act, and in doing so, he himself is sub-creating. Now, let's see. In one of his letters, he received a letter saying... Well, if you're a Catholic, how can you posit all these non-Catholic ideas like life everlasting or reincarnation for your elves? You know, how can you work so differently from reality? Again, this criticism is coming from a, a limited view of what you think reality is. If you're coming at reality from a materialistic point of view mm-hmm. and saying, well, only what I can see is what is real, then you're limiting yourself to all the things we believe as Christians, as in the good and the true and the beautiful and God existing immaterially. So Tolkien says this about uh, his own work, essentially. He says, We differ entirely about the nature of the relation of subcreation to creation. I should have thought that liberation from the channels of the creator is known to have used already is a fundamental function of subcreation, a tribute to the infinity of his potential variety, one of the ways in which indeed it is exhibited, as indeed I said in the essay. I am not a metaphysician, but I should have thought it a curious metaphysic. There is not one but many, indeed potentially innumerable ones, that declared the channels known in such a finite corner as we are thinking of to have been used, but are the only possible ones for efficacy, or possibly acceptable to and by him, him being capitalized. Reincarnation may be bad theology, that surely rather than metaphysics, as applied to humanity. But in my legendarium, especially the downfall of Numenor, which lies immediately behind the Lord of the Rings, is based on my view, that men are essentially mortal and must not seek to become immortal in the flesh. But I do not see how even the primary world, any theologian or philosopher, 
unless very much better informed about the relation of spirit and body than I believe anyone to be, could deny the possibility of reincarnation as a mode of existence prescribed for certain kinds of rational incarnate creatures. Hmm. You see what I'm saying? You break that down a little bit. Sure. What you saying? So, Tolkien is looking at the necessary ne- necessary qualities of God, right? And seeing how could God create. He's looking at a loving God who created us out of love and gave us life. Right. But what he's doing is taking that as a necessary quality of God and removing us from the equation because we are not necessary to the person of God. Okay. And saying, Mm -hmm. God created us like this, and that is mortal. He made us to die. Right. But what if he didn't? What if he created elves that didn't die or could be reincarnated? Okay. In the early works of Tolkien, elves might have been able to be reincarnated. We don't really see that later in his works. So he does that only by starting out with a clear and distinct idea of who God is. God is loving. He's creating. He created us. He created us to have life and be in union with him. Hmm. All right, now where do we go with that? How do we know that better? What would have happened if we remove this and add this? And that's what the Lord of the Rings is. That's what the Cimmerillion is. It's taking these pure distilled views of the universals and now changing it but in doing so we see what is constant mm-hmm. an accurate clear idea of who god is i like that <laughs> see in a, in a way good i'm glad I'm, I'm sorry now i'm rambling anything to, to add or object to i guess i don't want to jump too far ahead if you were going to get to this or you are going to get to this but i don't know if you want to give some examples so like what are some of the things that he uses and what is he communicating by them so like obviously the ring mm-hmm. the central object like, what is that telling us about what in real life? Or Frodo and Sam and their their journey, their relationship with one another, um, the fellowship with the ring, like any, any other number of things. Do you have insights into what, how do those fit into to your schema of, of fantasy and relationship with reality? Oh, excellent, excellent, excellent. Yes, this is, I have only just begun to scratch the surface of what could really be expressed in Lord of the Rings. And you're thinking to yourself, but Alec, you're defending your dissertation in five weeks. <laughs> um, because there's so, there's so much there. Again, uh, Richard Pertell, or Pertill, uh, it's one of those things where you, you read and you're not quite sure how to uh, pronounce it. Pertill. Pertill. Yes. Yeah. Love his book, would definitely recommend it. He is very emphatic that the Lord of the Rings is not an allegory, neither is the Cimmerillion. Sure. Because allegory uses a fictional stand-in for a non-fictional event or character. Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is Jesus Christ. Spoiler alert. Yeah. If you haven't read that, it's... Sure. Yeah. But it's very heavy-handed. Yeah, like the the classic allegory of Animal Farm for the Russian Revolution. Exactly. Yeah. The Lord of the Rings doesn't do that. The Lord of the Rings has many characters for many, many things. Right. So very popular, like, what does is, what is the ring stand for? The ring is our challenge with wills. So think about how, if you've, even if you've only seen the movie, think about how often the word will is used. Sauron's will is poured into the ring. The will is challenged by the, the use of the ring. Mm-hmm. It's that particular element of spiritual warfare where our wills 
to do to do good or to do poorly, to go do evil rather, I should say. That's what's hanging in the balance. Satan wants to, do, to have control over our desires. Mm. Specifically, that's that's what the ring represents. Now, Joseph Pierce, he draws out the ring being a stand-in for all of our sin, like the, the heavy sin. Uh-huh. But notice how it's Frodo carrying it up the mountain. So Frodo, in his person, is reminiscent of Christ as priest. Christ, mm-hmm. the one who carries our sins uh-huh. as he carried the cross. But then we also see Gandalf as Christ the prophet. So Christ was there in the halls of Alinor, or excuse me, in the halls of Iluvatar, when the music was sung. So Gandalf has this insight into how the world was created and how the world's going to develop and how the world is going to hmm. reach its fulfillment. So he can, quote, like sort of see the future. Now, what's very peculiar is that when the Ainur sung the world into existence, only Iluvatar, that is God, only he sung man into existence. So none of the angels hmm. understand what men are going to do. Okay. Because men have free will. The elves, the elves have more of a connection to the world, so the elves sort of follow the ebb and flow of nature. But humans, excuse me, but humans rather, can go against it. So humans are always surprising to Gandalf. Hmm. Um, so we have, so we have... Now, does that count for hobbits? Hobbits are... I'm confused with hobbits. Okay. I think it was Tolkien... One of my other commentaries on Tolkien, I have to, to, look, to look it up. One of my other commentaries on Tolkien says that hobbits are included as the children of Iluvatar, but I think that in the Book of Lost Tales, the hobbits are particularly created by Yavanna, which I like better. Okay. You have right. no idea what that is. Yavanna is one of the, <laughs> the Ainur, so the Ainur are the angels in Tolkien's right. world. The Ainur um, sing the world into existence. Right. Nine of the Ainur, oh my gosh, I don't know if it's nine or seven. I think it's nine. Nine okay. of the Ainur come to Earth as the Valar. And they have a particular connection to dominion of the world. Yavanna is the, the angel of nature. Okay. So she sings like trees and flowers and everything into existence. But I, in the Book of Lost Tales, one of the elves talks about how fairies and even leprechauns, all these very fae-esque creatures okay. are, are her creation or an oh her tribute. And I think hobbits fall under that, but that's just my interpretation. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Sorry, tangent. <laughs> um, tangential, tangential. And then, of course, Aragorn we see as um, being king, Christ the king. Right. So in all of these characters, they come together to form different aspects of of the person of Christ. Okay. I can see that. Particularly in the Cimmerillion, of course, talking about the Ainur, you have God, especially as a character, and the character of, of Eero Luvatar, who has dialogue with his angels. So Iluvatar creates the Ainur, right. and the Ainur are proposed a theme by Iluvatar, and in their theme, singing together, they create Middle-earth, which is why Middle-earth right. has a harmony. Melkor separates himself from the rest of the choirs of angels, choirs being a wordplay, right, because you have the choirs right. of angels, right. but Tolkien takes that and turns around, so it's a choir now singing together. Right. Separates himself from the choir, learns and teaches himself his own theme, different from Iluvatar's, reintroduces right. it, and causes confusion and discord into the choirs of angels. Right. Now that's even that's what turned me on to this whole insight of Tolkien, because that's a very, very subtle insight into I believe it's Psalm eighty three, but don't quote me on that, I'm Catholic. <laughs> Do I can look it up. Oh Psalm eighty two, you're right. Mm-hmm. But go ahead. Which 
the Lord, <laughs> the Lord addresses his angels and says, you are gods. And he judges them for not living up to their roles as being the stewards of men. So the angels do have this special dominion over the, event, the events of men. Similarly, St. Thomas Aquinas posits that anything that moves or that develops, let's see if, I'm, if I cited the right thing here. God takes a stand in the divine council, gives judgment in the midst of the gods, right? right? The gods are what they're called in the Cimmerillion. How long will you judge unjustly and favor the cause of the wicked? Defend the lowly and the fatherless, render justice to the afflicted and the needy, rescue the lowly and the poor, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods neither know nor understand, wandering about in darkness, and all the world's foundations shake. I declare, gods though you be, offspring of the Most High, all of you, yet like any mortal you shall die. Like any prince you shall fall, arise, O God, arise, O God judge the earth, for yours are all the nations. So the angels do have this responsibility to men. They have this responsibility to humanity to govern and to judge and to act justly. And it's very, very, very bad when they don't do that. Mm. <laughs> Thomas Aquinas also, like I was saying, Thomas Aquinas says that anything that moves or changes has its own guardian angel dominion over it. So the planets or the change of seasons, we all have a guardian angel. Gar angels do have this special role in governing the world. Right. And Tolkien expounds upon that in mm. giving them all names and, and showing us what it is for them to create in harmony. Okay. Yeah, that is really neat. And I like this, um, relating to that Psalm 2, 82, it's very, very awesome. Uh, in, in our Psalms class, we just talked about it maybe the last week or two, this is a very unusual psalm because usually it's God talking to the nations or talking to the Israelite people or the people talking to God. But this one is God judging the other gods. Mm -hmm. Our professor, Dr. Anderson, even mentioned the the word Elohim is used for gods. It's not just like, okay, like angels or something like that, but it's he's looking at the pagan gods and saying, you are unjust and you have done poorly. I'm taken over. I'm casting you out. So it's 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 really neat, but it's very unusual because mm -hmm. most of the other psalms are nothing like this. So. Right. It's it's very striking. I do believe that there's a spiritual reality to the to the pagan gods, right? Sure. Yeah. Did you did you read Paradise Lost by Milton? Just ep excerpts from it. Yep. Of oh, yeah, I think that's what everyone does with, with yeah. books like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, English literature, or whatever. Yeah. Well, I think there is something to be said for that when when the Devil's cast out of heaven. He falls for, what, three days? He falls through heaven, through earth, down to the pits of hell, into the center of the earth. And then who's with him in the with all of his demons? This wasn't one of the experts here. Who's with him with all of his demons? It's the pagan gods. Hmm. Like, Zeus is there and Ra's there. Hmm. A third example. Sure. So I think there, I, I think there is something spiritually... Milton is just telling a story, but I, I yeah. think that image is fitting. I think that yeah. has its own insight into into what it is for an angel to fall, hmm. the repercussions of that, to to lead nations that you are given dominion over, to lead them astray is horrifying. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean that's a that's a topic for another day, but but this reality of like, in the ancient world, everybody worshipped some god. Like, mm -hmm. every ancient nation, they had a god that they worshipped. 
And for us today, obviously, like we know that our Lord is God and the only true God and the, the pagan gods are not. But I do think that there has to be some kind of reality that that tends to be lost on us to be like, well, why did they like worship these things? They literally just like pulled out of their ear. Okay, like here's Zeus, here's Athena. We're gonna like build them temples and Huge worship temples, them. Huge temples, yeah. And and yeah, yeah. So I think like to to some degree, whether or not they were you know fallen angels or the influence of devils and things like that, or what. But like I think that there has to be some kind of reality to that. Oh, I think we we um, do the yeah. same thing, right? You ever have you ever been sending an important text that just won't send? You see the yeah, the, sure. And what do you yeah. start saying? Oh, please send, please send, please just send. <laughs> Are you praying to God or your phone? Yeah, good question. I mean, it's the same thing. Now, you go look in the ancient world, and you really need the crops to grow. You're mm-hmm. looking at that corn stalk, and you go, please grow, please just grow, just grow. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's the same but, thing. Yeah. Neil Gaiman has a book, which admittedly I didn't read, which <laughs> we can probably cut that out of the podcast, I guess. <laughs> um, it's called Small God. No, 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 Terry Pratchett wrote Small Gods. Neil Gaiman wrote American Gods. Okay. And American Gods about the gods that the immigrants brought to America. That's like the old world okay. gods. Hmm. But the old world gods are getting replaced by these cool, slick new gods of television and mm. whatever. Yeah, it's the same thing. Gotcha. Yeah. That's neat. Yeah, I mean, like, obviously our, our fiction work has a fascination with, with them. Like, you know, Percy Jackson, which I read as a kid. Yeah, so did I. enjoyed. Because, um, like, I remember reading, I don't know, some picture book of, like, Greek mythologies and then watching, like, Adventures from the Book of Virtues on PBS. And right, yeah. like, Tales of Theseus and Perseus and whoever else, Odysseus. Yeah, so, like, it is neat, but they exist, like, entirely in this world of, like, fiction in, in today. And perhaps, like, let's bring it back full circle. If we look at it as a element of fantasy, of being, like, there is a reality that, that they're telling us about the world. Mm-hmm. through these stories about these gods and not necessarily them just making up what did Zeus do today as telling some reality of what did you know what Zeus represented of power or kingship mm-hmm. what did he have to do with wisdom and knowledge for right, instance right. like how did he how does how do those things interact with one another mm-hmm. yeah they they really are they're caricatures and I think they deserve to be preserved. I mean, like I said, I don't necessarily know what to do with it because I think there is an element where angels that were... This is just me talking, you know, don't... Yeah, don't, yeah, yeah. There is an element where angels who were given the dominion over nations, they could have fallen and mm-hmm. lead the nation astray. But I think we know just in the way things like the the Iliad, the Odyssey, and the Aeneid, the way they're presented is that yeah. Zeus and Athena, um, they are caricatures, like I said. Right. And like you're saying, of certain aspects of power, wisdom, might, these divine qualities. So I think there is merit in keeping them mm. and keeping them like that. I almost now understand uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson said there are some myths that deserve to be broken out of respect for the human intellect. And maybe the pagan gods were like that. The pagan gods, they deserve to be they deserve to be viewed as characters. Right just out of so that we could come to understand the reality behind them hmm. makes sense yeah. yeah interesting I put him in my paper as a straw man who's <laughs> he showed some insight there you go any any other concluding thoughts or things to, to mention well to finish the the thought of Iluvatar is bound to the angels 
uh-huh. um, just because I think it's worth worth sharing. It means so much to me. There's a the the line in the Epistles of Paul where Paul says, "Do you not know that all that God works all things to the good?" I think that's brought to life in the Anulindale, the first book of the Cimmerillion, mm-hmm. when Melkor is trying to introduce discord into the songs of the Ainur. Mm-hmm. Iluvatar rises from his seat and says, Mighty are the Ainur, but mightiest of all of them is Melkor, but that you shall know that I am Iluvatar. I shall give thy songs being, and you shall find that there is no theme of which you could espound that hath not its utmost being in me. So, when you're reading this book and you're seeing the discord that Melkor is bringing into the choirs of angels, your thought is, well, why doesn't Luvatar just destroy him? Mm. I think it brings to life God's ultimate sovereignty and his mercy that Luvatar says, do you not understand that there's no theme which you could espound? Espound? There's no th- espouse or expound? Espouse, I think. Okay. I'm, trying to do, I'm doing this from memory. Sure. There's no theme of which you could create <laughs> yeah. that hath not its utmost being in me. God is always in control of whatever discord we could yeah. ever imagine. And you'll work all things to himself. I think that's an important lesson, a takeaway from um, just that story, and I wanted to share that. And if there is a takeaway going forward into Lent, if I can tie mm. this back into a, a the Lenten go. series... I think that it's important for us to view fantasy as something that is worthy of our reverence and our attention. And I think it's important for us to take it seriously and not push it aside as merely a form of entertainment. Okay. You know, bringing things back full circle, like you mentioned, fantasy is contingent upon a, a immaterial force affecting the physical world. That's our entire faith. Right. Right? We believe that God interacts with us, loves us into existence, works all things to our good. We believe that our prayers, us, a physicality, offering an immaterial that affects God and God responds to that. See, that's, that's the Christian faith. Therefore, fantasy is a Christian art form. Hmm. So, I think that this Lent... I, I'd encourage all of us, if, if we're looking for a new way to encounter God, which is what Lent is, I think finding good fantasy and taking time with it, praying over it, doing going through this exercise of what is the necessary quality, what can we extract, thinking critically about these stories, mm. I think that will do... How, how could it do anything but bring us closer to God? Mm. Of course, it has to be the right kind of fantasy written by people who are already taking it seriously. Right. But to to approach it critically with that sense of discernment and not push it aside as a form of entertainment, mm-hmm. I think that will have spiritual uh, fruit that is just tenfold, really. Fantastic. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts and insights on this topic. Oh, thanks for listening. Of course. For our listeners, feel free to listen to our other episodes, especially on creativity um where we also had a discussion kind of almost as a groundwork for this episode i think Mm -hmm. Uh, but it'd probably be good to to listen to both of them to talk about how how does creativity play into this interplay as well find us on 
Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please give us a rating if you would be so kind. And we'll catch you in the next one. See you later. Mm-hmm.